Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Sean Weefer. He transforms executives and sales teams into highly trusted advisors who can lead teams and win clients in the hybrid age. Sean, welcome. Delighted to be here, Marcus. Thanks for the invite. Excellent. Sean, can you give us 60 seconds on your career thus far and what got you to this point, please? Started life as a merchant Navy officer, specifically marine engineer. Came ashore, went into the IT industry and sales, went from sales exec to sales manager to sales director, was invited to train another company's sales teams, had no idea how to do it, drew up my flu charts like a typical engineer, had a ball, within a year it set up a training company, and moved into the training, professional training and coaching business where I've been for the last 20 odd years at this point in time. Then moved in as a professional conference speaker where I speak at sales conferences around the world, and then became a coach in 1997, way, so I'm sort of a granddaddy in that space, my first book coming out in 2001 on coaching and being originally mentored by Dr. Dennis Wakeley, the speaker, author, and behavioral psychologist in the States, who's an, just an incredible guy. And I've been in that space ever since. And as you say, I specialize in helping execs and leaders and sales teams become highly trusted advisors in this new hybrid age. So what do you mean by the hybrid age? The hybrid age is the age that we've basically moved in or we've been shoved into, if you will, since the time of COVID. So where we've moved to a situation where in many cases we're going to have a mix moving forward of operating digitally and remotely, and then some of that time being spent in offices. So I was speaking with a client recently who's a technology consulting firm, spoke to this the chief managing partner there and asked her, well, how do you see the future? And she said, the future is always going to be the way we are now. We're going to be remote, we're going to be digital, and we're only occasionally going to have office situations where we come together. I've spoken to CFOs of big organizations, and they said the entire employment landscape is going to change, and the infrastructural landscape is going to change as a result of that. So the hybrid age means that we need to be able to operate not just as we did in a live environment, but also be just as effective when it comes to operating in this two-dimensional environment we find ourselves in now. I'm excited by this because I think one of the most important lessons that we can learn from this is that breathing someone else's air and drinking their vile coffee is not a superpower. And what it's also done is it's catalyzed the shift towards partnerships and uh, alliances in the channel. Because why would you have a 150, 200 grand salesperson stuck on a plane, losing a day each way with the possibility of quarantine either end, when you can have a partner who isn't stuck on your payroll, wandering up the road on their electric bike, speaking to a customer they already know well. And I'm excited by that. I think it's great. I I think, and I agree with you. And obviously, uh, you know, your own book on uh, the whole concept of making channels and sales work, uh, which I'm about to start, but I've already read some of it, is just fantastic in that space. And it's really woken up my own thinking around that in the affiliate channel partner type space, as opposed to direct face-to-face selling. Now, that said, I do think there'll still be a big space for face-to-face selling in terms of large ticket items in a lot of cases where it might be a complex-based sale in that respect. But I do believe that scalability growth opportunity in that channel space is creating an enormous opportunity. But what it also is going to retain is this, this move to the digital space is interesting because what it's allowed the door to open for is a lot of AI engagement. So where people are looking at situations where they're able to look at facial recognition, they're able to monitor people's engagement online and what have you. But I think what it's emphasized 
is that AI has a purpose in terms of replacing transactional selling or transactional leadership or transactional professions like legal and accounting and what have you. But there's an even bigger need now for this relational, this relationship-based type business element, which is fundamentally down to the capacity we have to stimulate emotional engagement with people. And that's where the investment needs to be in terms of our leaders and in terms of our uh, our, our sales uh, teams and our channel partners for that matter. Well, I, I, I think the other area that I'm really excited about uh, with the, uh, the growth of AI and uh, the period that we're in at the moment is it will drive technology to help understand the emotional responses that we might not get those cues of when it's just two dimensions. And it's the human AI partnership. But the other piece I'm really excited about is I think we're going to be experiencing a renaissance like we did after every other plague. And there, it will really be focused around collaboration. Yes. And I think our success in the future will be determined by our ability to collaborate. Totally. And the mathematics of alliances is, um, you know, going direct, the mathematics is one plus one equals two. Uh, Tom Matson says the mathematics of strategic alliances is one plus one is 11. And you'd be hard pressed if you do a good job in a strategic alliance, not to 10x your business. And that's really very exciting because that's scale. That's not just growth. Scaling is where you grow without taking on additional workload. And it also creates wealth, freedom, but it also creates employment because now you've got money to invest. And so I'm very excited by what the potential that that represents. I would completely concur. I think what, what, what you raised there is an interesting point, which is something I have a particular interest in. And I actually wrote a small book about it recently called Invoking the Feminine Strength, Love and Wisdom, which you and I have spoken about. And that is this importance of moving from these traditional masculine models of engagement, the command and control, the competition, the cutthroat, the scarcity, all of that sort of stuff, the hierarchical element that drives what goes on in sales teams and leadership teams in general, to what we what I term the feminine aspect, which is more about those values of nurture, collaboration, co-creation, and even nurture in that respect. Because what we need to look at, even in terms of the partnership element that you talk about, we need to be working with our clients on the basis of co-creating solutions. Absolutely. solutions, co-ownership of solutions. And a lot of the work I do when I'm training sales teams and those kind of techniques is to teach them, you've got to stop thinking like a salesperson and a pitcher, and you've got to start thinking like an advisor, which is somebody who's seen as trusted, as a guide, as somebody who interprets information for people to make it relevant to what they do, rather than just providing information. And that, So that feminine aspect needs to be coming up more and more, both in leadership and in sales, in terms of how we work with people. I'd go further. I, I'm comfortable nowadays because the term trusted advisor has been overused. Yeah. I'm more comfortable with the idea that you become a trusted partner with your customers and you're working with them over time to co-develop solutions to stay ahead of where they are today. And you've got to keep asking what next, what next, what next. But the traditional seller, and so I'm coming to my question, you'll be pleased to hear. The traditional seller has a finite mindset. You've already touched on competitive, will to win, 
money motivated. Yes. And I have to be honest, I've never met someone who is genuinely motivated by money who wasn't a total ass. Um, <laughs> I, I understand why someone who's come from extreme poverty would be driven by money so that they don't go back to that. It's a powerful uh, poverty. value for them. But that's a selfish motivation. Um, well, sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I think you need to look at the issue of money at a deeper level, right? We have values that drive our emotional responses and our engagements. So money, I often find, I talk to sales guys and say, what, you know, why do you want to make this goal happen? Why is this important to you? I say, well, duh, money. And I will say, well, duh, what does the money get you? Uh, absolutely. You know? It's never about the money. Never it's about, about the, money. the experiences and the choices that you can make with it. But the money is a byproduct. Yes. It's the same thing uh, with a business. Henry Ford said, business that's set up only to make money is a bad business. It needs to serve the customer first and foremost. It needs to serve its staff. It needs to serve its community. If it does those three things well, it makes shitloads of money. And you end up with a highly engaged staff. Now, Salesforce's research that came out at the end of uh, 2020 was really very clear. It said that the single biggest multiplier to customer success was engagement of employees. 100%. And if you don't have engaged employees who feel valued, who are included, then you end up with pissed off customers. So my question is this, is what passes for great in sales fit for purpose? No, it isn't. Not at the present time. And I would go one stage further, and what passes for leadership is not fit for purpose either. And you beat me to my next question, but oh. yeah, go. <laughs> well, well, let me just continue that, if I may, right? Yeah. One of the most interesting things when you start to study the history of sales and selling and, and the theoretical aspects of it is the word selling, the root word of selling is service. So it actually means to be of service, right? So if you want to interpret what selling is to people who are a little bit concerned about being salespeople or they see a low status role in it, you have to educate them. Really, your job is to identify and work with people who have challenges and problems, and you find a way to solve and take away that pain by being of service. And then you get monetized on the back of that, right? So that's the first thing. So you talked about partner, I talk about advisor, because I think there's an element of external perspective that's important in the process too. And I don't see an advisor or partner as being mutually exclusive in terms of long-term relationship. Now, if you twist that around, leadership today should also be about service because proper leadership is about creating the environment in which your people can excel. That's it, right? So whether you're a salesperson or whether you're a leader, then it's, it's all based around service. And that's why I use the term a highly trusted advisor. And I'll explain the difference in a second between trusted and highly trusted. Yeah. Because whether you're a leader or whether you're a, a salesperson, they're two sides of the same coin. It's about how you serve, it's about how you include, it's about how you engage, it's about how you connect, it's about how you partner, to use your phrase, with people. And then the difference between trusted advisor, and I completely agree, it's been bandied around and it's been, it's been commoditized in some respect. And the term that I use, which is highly trusted, is that there are levels of trust in relationships. So you and I both know people that we know and we like, but we may not share everything with them. Everybody has those relationships. We have them professionally, we have them personally. And then we have people who we have such a close relationship with that there's no restrictions, no hesitations, no limitations, whatever. We put it all on the table and say, can you help me? This is me. And if you want to know who those people are in your, in your business and in your career, think about the customers who came to you, who got a quote from somebody else and said, can you match this? 
because they want to work with you, because that's the level of engagement, that's the level of partnership, that's the high level of trust that they have with you. And I would argue that it isn't just the sales guys who need to have that. It needs to be our leaders. It needs to be our managers. It needs to be our inspirers. And all great leaders bring an element of the masculine command and control where it's applied and the feminine, inclusive, nurturing and and co-creation and partnership. About 12 or 13 years ago, a client of mine was uh, running an events company and he had uh, Stephen Covey over. And I remember asking an exceptionally mediocre question and having a life-changing moment in his response. I can't remember what the question was, but Dr. Covey said, the greatest among us serve the most. And that was a turning point for me. And it's really been fueled by my experience, both as a seller and a, a leader, but also as a buyer. And my pal, Simon Bowen, really inspired me when he taught me the concept of buyer safety. And buyer safety depends on three key drivers, reliability, responsiveness, and relevance. And the pillars upon which it's built are rigorous authenticity, customer centricity, and a focus on customer success. You notice nowhere in there is selfish self-interest or um, the motivation uh, around money. And it requires you to be ready to be vulnerable. And again, if we look at the root cause of the word vulnerable, it's vulnerabilis in Latin. And it means to put yourself in harm's way, to make yourself woundable and do it anyway. It takes enormous courage to recommend a competitor, to tell the customer that you should not buy from us. It also takes enormous courage uh, to enter into constructive conflict when they're about to shoot themselves in the foot or when they're taking the piss and they're overstepping the mark to confront them and to challenge them. And so we saw the growth of the challenger sale, which is a brilliant concept, but often in the hands of the wrong people who use the challenge as a sword, not a shield. And lack of clarity. Ambiguity is the mother of all fuck-ups. And the problem is that what ambiguity does, it leads to mismatched expectations and disappointment on both sides. And you can't get into that long-term partnership. You can't develop those strong, sustainable agreements. And so you're never moving into a collaborative state where you co-develop solutions that make the customer successful repeatedly over time and create value for them. And that's where I think we've taken a very, very wrong turn in sales. I mean, everything, obviously, completely agree with everything you said. There's a simple premise in terms of how I put that to people when I'm talking to them. And that is this, right? We're in the business of persuasion and influence, not in the business of manipulation. The stereotypical perspective of a salesperson is the fact that we're out there, we're cocky, we're oversure, you know, we're we're dishonest. You know, I ask sales teams, give me the stereotypical words you'd associate with a salesperson, and they tell me these words. That's what they think people are thinking, right? But the bottom line is, is we're not in the business of manipulation. We're not in the business of a one-off win where we win and the other person loses. We're in the business of persuasion, which is we only win and continue to win long-term client value when the client wins first. If the client wins first, then they will come back and we will win again. And they'll come back and we will win again. And they'll come back and we will win again. And part of that win, I completely agree with you. And I've never had a problem with this. 
I'm interested in service, which means I'm interested in taking away the pain. If I'm not the right person to do it, I'll happily put you to somebody else because I'm interested first and foremost, and you use a great expression, in buyer safety, right? Their security, their well-being, and people recognize that and to a large extent will reward you for that because they'll come back to you when they have a need for what you offer. So I've never had a challenge with that, but I do believe it is a principle that needs to be taught more effectively. And there is an issue here, which really permeates from the money and the leadership, because I I think what we find is that the conduct and behavior of the money behind you permeates into the business. And there is a huge issue. So I'd love to talk to you for a moment about investor culture and motivation and how that affects leadership their measurement and their culture and compensation. Yeah. So what we've seen in the last 30, 40 years is the price of investment skyrocket. And so investors, in order to make their money go further, have to put the investments that they make into debt. And they operate on these quarterly cycles, which as private companies, they don't really need to do. But they operate on these quarterly cycles, which then drives some horrific behaviors. They all claim to be customer-centric until the end of the quarter when they behave like monsters. And they tell people to go out and sell anything. They strip out the pipeline from the next quarter. That then creates burnout from the sales team because the sales team is now having to pedal twice as hard to get half as far. So middle management is massively squeezed. So how do we fix this? The heart of that is the motivation aspect. It's the motivation of the investors. It's the motivation of the leaders, the motivation of the team, right? And there are two fundamental elements of motivation. There's away from motivation, right? Away from motivation is you're getting away from a place where you don't want to be, right? So they, they want to make more profit in a sense. They don't, want to, they don't want to earn that because it looks bad on the sheets. The investors are going, to, are, are going to bitch about it. And therefore, they drive the pressure onto the leaders to get the productivity. And then they drive the sales team. And then they interact with the customers in that way. So as long as you have negative away from motivation, which is short-term, fear-based, and highly stressful, and particularly this, this quarter number bullshit, right? Yep. Which I've never understood as a value, right? Because, and particularly in private companies where you don't have the stock price being viewed every quarter and everybody's worrying about their bonuses, right, is, is complete nonsense. I think the metrics need to change to more of a toward situation. Where do we want to be with our customers? Let's change the metrics. Now, money needs to be made. We're a commercial business. I get that. But I think if you invest in the relationship, if you, for example, start to measure level of trust, level of engagement, level of satisfaction, both in the customer's and in the people who are engaging with them, right? I think you'll see a very different situation. You might see a slightly slower incremental growth, but you will see growth. And most importantly, what you'll see is higher retention rates. Because if you keep pressurizing people based on artificial concepts where you're driving your leaders, you're burning them out, you're driving your teams, you're burning them out, then what happens is you lose clients. Because the depth of the relationship is there. They don't trust you anymore because they know the only reason you're calling me at the end of the quarter is that you've got a a target you need to meet and you just want to make a sale. And then customers play that off and they know that, well, I know I'll get 10 or 15 or 20% off by giving the deal this Sunday. So you lose revenue straight away. So we do need to refocus how we're measuring the metrics. I'm with you 100%. This is where um, that kind of thinking 
is fueled by a total lack of understanding of the economics. And the irony is it's being driven mainly by finance people. Oh, yeah. And because the money men are finance people. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but also, there's uh, one other thing, Marcus. The money men never get in front of the end user. They don't understand their lives. They don't understand their challenges. They don't understand the context they're in. They don't understand any of that. They just say, here's a number we need to make it because that looks good on the sheet. Sounds a bit like our politicians. Moving on. So, what we know is that companies that have less than highly engaged employees produce a third of the profit that companies with highly engaged employees. They have less than half, in fact, about only 40% of the revenue per employee, nearly double the turnover, and nearly 40% less productivity. But share price growth for companies that have highly engaged employees is three times higher year on year. This is based on the S&P 500 uh, study from 2010 to 2016. That's pretty bad. It it is irresponsible and poor fiscal management for investors to drive that kind of behavior. And investors, the, the people whose money they are investing, should be holding them to account. They should be asking them, why are you doing this? Why are you driving my profits down? Why are you limiting my share price growth? And those are the kind of questions that I would like high net worth individuals to push back to private equity and venture capital. I completely agree with you. I I think the issue is that there's also, you know, there's an enormous cost in losing staff. Mm. There's an enormous cost in recruiting new people, both in terms of time for a manager, the physical time involved in doing it onboarding them, getting them up to speed again, getting them up to the numbers again. And when you're hemorrhaging people, as you will, because they've been burnt out, they've been driven to distraction, they're, look, salespeople fundamentally in our current situation are commercial mercenaries. We work for the highest bidder because we've been taught that money is the end goal for what we do, right? So if we're ticked off in a particular place, if we don't feel, if we don't have the basic human values of feeling engaged, feeling accepted, feeling recognized, feeling rewarded, and by the way, the same values that drive our customers, right? Then you have a whole series of of hidden costs, or maybe not so hidden costs, that are also impacting on the bottom line, quite apart from which you're losing sales and not retaining clients. Okay, so let's break down those hidden costs. You've got the recruitment fee, if you pay a recruiter. You've got the management time tied up in the recruitment process. Correct. You have the salary that you burn through while they underperform, or and then you have to fire them. Correct. The legal and HR costs associated with it. Correct. You've got the leads that they have burnt through. Correct. You have the business that they have left on the table because they've failed to perform. Or they've taken with them to a new client. And they've That's taken correct. with them to a new client. You have the lifetime value of those customers that they haven't won that have gone to your competitors. Correct. And that's the initial sale, the repeat sales, the referrals, the cross-sales, the upsells. Um, and you have another element, and that's a brand cost. And you have the brand cost. Now, when you add that up in an enterprise sale, you could be paying 35 to 125 times their salary because, and that's just for one. And when you look at the churn, at the lower end of the spectrum in SDRs, we see on a regular basis turnover of 40, 50, 60%. 
I've seen 120% turnover in those teams. I was speaking to one of my CEOs yesterday and a friend of his works for a software company. They hired 60 people. 35 had gone within three months. And within six months, only six were left. That's extraordinary. And that's apparently an acceptable cost of doing business. Well, if I was an investor, it would mean acceptable cost to me in terms of the money and my capital going down the drain. But they do this all the time. And uh, yeah, that, that's it, the they, norm. But they do it because if we go back to the original element of the conversation we talked about, we do it because they have this macho command and control, hire and fire type bullshit philosophy around what they're doing. Instead of teaching them, we have a different set of values here. You will learn how to apply them. You will, and, and we'll coach you how to do it. We'll mentor you. We'll support you in how you do it. We will do this. And I think the issue is there's a fear. There's a fear that if they take the time to do that, that they lose opportunities that they have that they're currently managing. Instead of realizing if you take the time to do it, you'll maximize what you already have plus what you'll engage in the future because of that shift. It really is truly terrifying. And when you consider the value that you could be generating from a customer for life. And so when I'm working with my clients and uh, I'm building sales teams for them, I have a philosophy, which is what we're doing is we're uh, we're recruiting customers who will be a customer in 5, 10, 15, 20 years time. I'm not interested in them being transactional sellers. Yeah, absolutely not. And in doing that, Funnily enough, you start to make profit quite quickly, but you've got to slow down to speed up. Now, there is a huge problem here in that virtually every organization is pushing you as a new salesperson to hurry up, get out there, hit the phones, go out and meet customers, but with next to no emphasis on really establishing, are they the right customer? Because again, if we look at the typical bell curve distribution, 4% of your customers will produce probably 70% of the shit that goes on in terms of late payments, unhappy customers, uh, tickets being raised, and so on. So that bottom 20% is really expensive. Um, But because they're focused on revenue and they're compensated on revenue, they will rush out there to get anything over the line. And so you end up with this leadership that is, um, Mark Twain said it beautifully. He said, your eyes won't see when your imagination is out of focus. And I, I think so often the imagination is out of focus because of what everyone else does, what you've always done. And because you're spending your life putting out fires, You're not sitting back and asking the obvious questions and the difficult, simple questions like, well, why do we do it this way? Uh, Is there a better way? Can I just come in on that? Because I completely concur with what you said about the the, the cost and time and opportunity that a certain percentage of clients cause for us. One One of the things that a lot of people, salespeople, leaders, various other people struggle with, but which I specialize in teaching, is this concept of how we network. So during, you know, pre-COVID as we can get in a room, how you work a room, there's a psychology, there's a process, there's a strategy, anybody can learn it, and you don't have to come across as salesy, and you don't have to come across as 
the wrong type of networker, basically. You can do this in a very professional manner in a very particular series of steps. And what I guarantee is that every single person who learns how to do this will walk out of any live networking event with three warm contacts. That means three people who want to sit down and have a conversation with them, right? Now, if they do that once a week or once a month even, right, they're going to end up with 36 to 50 contacts without ever having to pick up a phone, right? Now, quite apart from that, the one thing I say then is, and the one thing you need to learn is this, fire a client a month. <laughs> so you look at those 4% that you talked about, and you know the clients you don't want to work with. You know the ones that you're giving them, you're giving the service for half the price and they're causing you twice the trouble, right? You don't need them. But whenever you talk to the audience about that, they suddenly get shocked about the idea of me fire a client. I can't fire a client. They make me money. It's exactly what you were saying. They're not. They're losing you money because you don't. It, it, what matters is what you keep. You know that, and I know that, right? But it's exactly what you said about they're afraid of losing any little bit of revenue, no matter how much pain it causes them. Whereas the act, the actuality is, if, if you're an effective networker, if you know what you're doing, if you're in the right room at the right time at the right place, and know what the hell you're doing, well, you're going to pick up three or four every month for an hour's work. You get rid of the ones you don't want to do. They're not adding any value. They're, they're sucking the life out of you, and they're sucking the life out of your business. So get busy with getting out there and fire a client a month. It's a shocking principle for a lot of these people, but I completely concur what you said. Why would you put up with that 4% who aren't making you any money? Well, I'm going to go even further, and this is quite extreme, but I think you should probably look at firing your bottom 80%. Because the top 20% generate 80% of the profit. The 80-20 rule, yeah. Absolutely. Why not, why not recruit more customers like the top 20% and spare yourself the time? One of my favorite, many of the listeners will have heard me rant about this in the past, but there's something called Price's Law. And Price's Law states that the square root of the number of people in your organization will generate 50% of your production. So if you have 10 three will produce 50%. If you have 100, 10 will produce 50%. If you have 10,000, 100 will produce 50%. Now, it works the other way as well. The square root of the number of people in your organization will produce the worst stuff in your business. So the bottom three will be producing at least 50% of all the crap that goes on. But as you grow and you scale, that number that is uh, very small by comparison to your overall, and you end up spending an inordinate amount of time, money, resource, opportunity cost, distraction on those negative producers. So the same thing goes with your partners. The same thing goes with your suppliers. Keep looking at the ones that are difficult to do business with, the ones that make your life a misery. Because business should be fun. You should look forward to going to work instead of dreading every time the phone rings or when you see someone's number come up, your uh, heart sinks to the pit of your stomach. (laughs) And God knows there are enough people out there. This then comes back down to a lot of what's wrong, which is that training and coaching are either not done or they are in the hands of the wrong people to purchase it. So L&D and HR, well-intentioned, But what they know about sales, you can write on the back of a postage stamp, and they measure smile sheets and retention. I mean, in the same way, no one recruits, goes out to recruit somebody because they want to recruit. 
They want someone who's going to succeed in the role and stay. Okay, so it makes sense to look at how you get comp- how you compensate your recruiters for hiring in people or helping you recruit people who you hire who succeed in the role and stay for at least two years and spread the fee that way. I think trainers are really guilty of this because almost none of them do any form of after training follow up because they don't think it's their place or they don't think they can sell it. Well, if you're in sales training, let me wake you up to something. Improve how you sell. Actually sell the customer what they need instead of just going after the revenue and selling selfishly because you do everybody a disservice. Why are trainers not held to account for the performance afterwards? And I see why they would push back because they don't have control. Well, What's the partnership that they're creating in terms of ongoing reinforcement, coaching, follow-on levels of engagement, so that they become highly trusted partners to the salespeople, to the managers, to the leadership? That just tells me that the industry is crap. Well, I think we have a problem in uh, the training and coaching industry in that it is oversubscribed, and it's oversubscribed with a lot of people who don't have any real sales leadership or sales experience, and it's oversubscribed by people who are not really competent in what they do, and yet they hold themselves up as pillars of competence at the end of the day. I mean, 90% of sales trainers and coaches I would never hire, particularly coaches. I mean, that's my particular area of expertise. I mean, if you are looking to coach or teach someone how to coach, like a manager, because let's face it, coaching going into the hybrid age where we're operating remotely and digitally is going to be a fundamental skill set for sales managers and leaders going forward. It always has been, though, Sean. Yeah. Yes, and not been executed. There's a fundamental misunderstanding about what coaching actually does and what it is at the end of the day and how you measure the outcomes with it, right? But the issue is, I mean, what coaching gives you is modern leadership. It's inclusive. It's service-based. And it should be structured. It should be measurable. You should see a change in performance on the back of that, right? But there is no manager in the world who's well enough trained in the field of coaching to be able to pass on that particular issue. In many cases, they're asked to go mentor people. I haven't even a clue what mentoring is and how it's different to coaching, how long it should last, what they should cover, how do they measure those outcomes? And the reality is there's a lot of so-called professional coaches and trainers who have rebadged themselves from something else and are offering a service that at the end of the day, to be fair to the buyer, they don't really have a lot of knowledge of until they engage them and they're not seeing the results they were looking for. So we have a lot of problems within that space. You know, competence, background, capability, and most importantly, systemic approaches. How do you measure change? There's not enough of, assist, of insistence on how, show me how this guy has changed. Show me how this, how this girl has changed as a result of that engagement. What have they learned? What are they doing differently? Those measurements need to be in place and they need to be agreed before the intervention even happens. Absolutely. And again, the two areas where there is, I mean, salespeople, there is a fabulously depressing statistic. 74% of managers. I've had a lot of fabulously depressing statistics so far. (laughs) 74% of managers believe they are coaching their people. Only 17% of the salespeople, of the managers who are surveyed, believe they're receiving coaching. I must get that stat because that is just beautiful. Now, it gets worse because middle managers are the most important people in any sales operation, but they only receive 3% of the training budget 
And by and large, they receive the square root of fuck all by way of coaching. True. And you, that you, is true. You, you see a handful of companies. Absolutely true. But leaders do not get coaching either. They might, may buy in an executive coach, but the, internally, there isn't a lot of coaching. And the other thing that really gets my goat is where you have people who say, I only hire veterans. They don't need training. They don't need coaching. Let me just wake you up to something. You're dealing with people who are responsible for seven-figure budgets, and you're telling me that you're not going to give your Ferrari a service because <laughs> it's a, it's a, a high-performance machine? They need the service more than anyone because if a bolt goes off on one of those, you're talking yeah. about a shitload of cash. Yeah, but your, your problem is, Marcus, your problem is that the development of sales leadership and the development of sales teams doesn't rest with sales leaders. It rests with HR people. It rests with learning and development people. And as you said, the most they could ever tell you about sales and the reality of what the front line is like is on the back of a postage stamp, right? You do not have sales organizations within businesses that are sufficiently empowered to do everything that's needed to manage the environment, manage the people, manage the leaders, and give them the best quality education and coaching needed to continually go out there every day and face the rejection that they face every day and stay positive, stay motivated, stay say excellent with their competencies and their skill sets, all of that elements. I mean, the interface between an organization and its customers are our sales and business development teams. Why are they not getting the investment they need to have compared to the likes of the finance department or the HR department, any other bloody department, instead of the guys who make stuff happen? Here's one of the things. I always talk about selling as an accidental profession, right? No, yeah. I don't care who you were, when you were seven years old, said, I'm going to grow up and be a salesperson, right? No, you didn't tell. You said you were going to be an architect or an astronaut or an army officer or whatever the hell it was, right? And even if you did, your parents turned around and said, oh, no, you won't, right? Because they didn't view selling as a sufficiently status-based job or role. They saw that old, traditional, commercial seller concept of we're given a product, we got to get out and sell it, whatever it takes to sell because I got to eat which is still prevalent in our business. We talked about this at the start of this conversation, right? And yet people find themselves in sales. People are highly qualified in what they do. Engineers, architects, they're now involved in sales and they're there because their personality fits. But personality alone is no longer enough. We need proper competency-based training, proper systemic training, proper leadership training, because at the end of the day, if sales falls, the company falls. If sales rises, the company rises. It's not rocket science, people. And this then hails to another point, which is the wrong people end up in management. And oh, yeah. as a result, yeah. they have far too frequently created the conditions for alienation between sales and the rest of the business. Which is, you, know, you know why that happens, right? You've got a really, yeah. really good sales guy, right? Really well, good, right? He sees himself or she sees themselves as a sales rep and they don't think that's sufficient status, right? They're going to say, well, I'm going to leave. I want to get a job unless you promote me, right? And of course, you don't want to lose this particular individual. So yeah, you make him or her a sales manager or a sales director. But now the problem is they just continue doing the job they were doing and getting in the way of everybody else. You get a double whammy. You lose a high-performing salesperson and you gain a shit manager who creates all sorts of morale issues, drives 
increased turnover of your sales team. Um, and But again, I'm going to challenge you on something. Okay. Because when you say that they are great salespeople, in the transactional finite world, they are high performers. But often, if you look at their overall client retention rates, if you look at the cost of having them sell, they're not the best salespeople. Um, I would agree. I think that's. I think that's very well put, and I would. I. It's not a challenge at all. I'd one hundred percent agree with that. Again, account management, the channel, are often seen as the ginger-haired, ugly step twins of direct sales, which is the golden child. It's the the area where the VP of sales came from. So they rate new business highly. And that's being driven by their investors and their leadership and all that kind of shit. And we really need to take a step back. And a, a question that I like to ask these hero managers is, so tell me something. When you look at your customer retention rates and the team of your team, how do they stack up? And the normal response is, well, that's not my problem. My job is to go out and get new logos. Well, actually, it's not. Your job is to help the company to be successful. And you hit your number much more easily and much more profitably and much quicker if you slow down. Um, I think one of the things that I'm really, I have a real bugbear about is that marketing is not involved in ever touching the customer, really. So they need to speak to customers. Product development needs to speak to the customer. Over 40% of complaint tickets are raised because engineers design the product. And the people who really are brought in far too late, if at all, are customer success. The companies that I'm working with, customer success signs off on a deal before sales can close it. Now, that's a scary thing for sales because now they actually have to tell the truth. They have to make sure that we can deliver because I'm not interested in the short-term gain. I'm interested in the long-term partnership with the customer. Well, if you look at the cost of what it takes to acquire a customer in the first place, oh, you know, it breaks my heart because again, you know, when you think about that buyer safety piece, it really is an immoral culture that allows customers to be churned through or sold to when you're not the right vendor or they don't need what you have or there is a better outcome. And I know, yes, we've got to go out and we've got to make a profit, but let's be honest, unless you're selling something where there are a handful of customers, in the sales training world, in the US, there are probably 17 million prospective customers. If one says no to you, it makes absolutely sod all difference. In the UK, there are probably 3 million prospective customers. If they say no to you, so what? Okay, but what that's telling me is you are not doing a good enough job of doing your job, which is selling. Uh, you've got, you know, people um, in the sales training business really need to get good at developing great pipeline and being great salespeople so that they can actually speak from a position of scar tissue instead of being corporate refugees um, or trading. And that is so true. That is so true. That's exactly what they are. The vast majority of them, particularly in coaching, are corporate refugees. Uh, It's a great title. I love it. It's, It's the same thing in sales training, but also you see lots of these people going out there and professing 
the thing that also really pisses me off is when I look at uh, LinkedIn and all these people going into the tedious perennial fight of, you know, cold calling is dead. No, it's not. No, uh, my pal, Justin mm-hmm. Michael, made 130 dials, got 88 effectives and booked 33 meetings in one day. So cold calling is not dead if you do it right. I've got other clients who are regularly massively outperforming uh, the rest of the market, you know, 1,400% higher performance than the market average. Why? Because they do it well. They train, they get coached, and they review, they're self-reflective. They are focused on the customer's outcome. They become great at storytelling. They make the customer the hero. None of this tedious turning up and just vomiting features and functionality. Yeah. And that is true. I mean, the old vomit principle, you come up and just throw everything on them and hope some of it sticks. It doesn't work anymore. Well, it, it, it never element, but That's all people know how to do, you know? Yeah. But uh, so it keeps coming back down to those middle managers. Yeah. I think if, if you take nothing away from today's conversation, it's the pivotal, vital importance of your middle managers. Recruit them well and recruit them for their capability as managers and as coaches, not because they were a big swinging dick who managed to hit a quota. I had one person reach out to me because of a post that I did recently, and he's got background in sales management, but obviously when recession hit, he struggled and he had to find another job. And because he's not performing brilliantly as a salesperson, he's not getting a look in for any promotions. But one of the best managers that I've ever worked with, mediocre sales guy, phenomenal manager. Um, you know, he turned around 11 hotels in seven months and the EBITDA went up 29%. Now, in, if you've ever worked in hospitality, a 29% increase in EBITDA is unheard of. And he managed to uh, recruit brilliantly. His people loved him, were loyal, but not a great salesman and didn't need to be. And in fact, if you've um, ever studied, uh, read about uh, Google's Project Oxygen. Project Oxygen was their exercise to try and find out what makes for a great manager. Being competent in the area that they are managing came eighth on their list. The number one thing that was really important was would other people in the team recommend joining the team to their friends and uh, their uh, colleagues who they cared about? And that's the importance of coaching skills for managers, because coaching is about creating a framework where they're included, they're engaged. It isn't necessarily about your expertise, it's about drawing out from them the expertise they have and getting them committed to doing and taking the actions and being held personally accountable to deliver on that within a structured framework. That's proper coaching. Excellent. Look, Sean, we've come to the top of the hour, sadly. We could rant for hours. I I, I definitely feel like Statler and Waldorf today. (laughs) Okay, so what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I guess, you know, coming back to something, I suppose I've been in this business a very long time. And I suppose certainly since the beginning of the pandemic, I guess one of the elements is is struggling about definition, you know, standing out about what you do. And and you're competing with all of these guys that we talked about, but it's the it's the challenge to we have a challenge at the moment with the mass levels of distraction people have to face. Everybody faces it. So getting quality attention of someone equals share of wallet. And it's just getting that time can be sometimes challenging because there's so many people offering so many things. To be fair, 
when I say I'm struggling with it, let's just say I looked at it in the past. I've now found a solution which I'm going to implement, which will change and rewrite everything I do in that respect. And and actually, funny enough, it's focused on um, those middle managers you talked about. It's about helping sales managers become great sales leaders. And that's going to be the focus going forward um, in the next couple of months. Excellent. Well, uh, one thing that people can do is go back to their customers and have them become their advocates. Uh, If you've done a good job, I have a, a structure for a testimonial. And again, if you look at coaches and trainers, look at how many testimonials they have from happy customers that go beyond the training itself. It's after the training. And look at how many they have, because by and large, most coaches and trainers have none, or maybe if they're lucky, a dozen. That's not really good PR or good evidence. If you've got 100 or 200, that's pretty indicative that people could be asked to write something. And the structure is, you give this series of questions to your clients. Who are you and who do you serve? What originally caused you to reach out for help for someone like me? What initial reservations did you have about investing in me specifically? It's a good question. What results did you generate as a result of the work we did together? Pounds, percentages, growth, uh, logos, whatever. What uh, surprised you about working with, uh, with me? Was it fun? And would you recommend me and why? Now, if you get those kind of testimonials in their own voice, And then you end up with about the equivalent of an A4 page of uh, narrative. That is incredibly compelling. I've had at least 12 customers sign up just on the back of my testimonials. Now, the other thing that I would do is not worry about the competition. What I would do is go to your customers and see who they are connected to, who you want to sell to, and ask them to make an introduction on the basis of their recommendation. Maybe maybe I should clarify what I mean by what I'm struggling with, right? It's not so much struggling for business. Business is just fine, thanks. I get a lot of really good customers. And in fact, since September, obviously from March to September of the COVID year, everything just disappeared as people reorientated, got themselves restructured and so on. But September up to now has been busy as hell in terms of lots of things. So there's no issue about that. I guess what it is, is whether I can just be arsed to continue to compete with people I don't have any respect for in my profession whether I can be asked to actually just put the effort in to compete against people who shouldn't be in the field in the first place. I mean, that's the reality. I have no issue around getting business. I have no issue about working in my space. I have no issue about delivering results. I deliver results for all of my clients, measured results, right? But but it's just, can I just be asked staying in a profession or an industry that has as many people in it that I wouldn't give a job to? That I get. And my response to that is, frankly, just ignore them. My pal Simon Byrne has four levels of seller, and I think you find the same in the training world. You have the pill pusher. (laughs) No one wants to pay a lot for a pill, so they're always about price. Then you have the authority figure, and God knows there are more of them than flies. And they all sound the same, so they eventually become a pill pusher very quickly. Then you have the hero seller. And people come to the hero seller to be defended because they're hurting. And the hero seller beats their chest and tells you, do what I do, and off you go. And then there is a massive gap between the hero and the sage. 
and just play in the space of the sage. People come to the sage for their wisdom in the hope that some of it will rub off. And you charge premium for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would like to think I'm sitting in that space with quite a few of my clients at the present time. But uh, no, it's just, look, it's very simple. Like we started the conversation, I believe in ethics. I believe in delivering value. I believe in giving the latest cutting edge things that help people be the very best at what they can do. I said earlier that leadership is about creating the environment in which your people can exceed their capability. That's the environment that I create for my people. So I believe that my job is to lead, to create environments and cultures where they can be the best at what they do. Because fundamentally, at the very deep personal level, my desire is to help people on that journey of perfecting, to help them actualize all of their potential that they have to bring it into the world for the benefit, not just themselves, but everybody around them. That's the which, philosophy I was subscribed to. Which is interesting because those are exactly the qualities that managers and leaders need to have. If you do not derive the greatest satisfaction from seeing other people thrive and succeed and exceed their limited uh, limitations of where they believe their potential is, then do not go into management. And, and that's, the reason, re- that's the reason I went into this industry, because I wanted to give my expertise, my knowledge, my background to help people be the very best they can be at what they choose to do. Absolutely. Cool. Okay. So what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to that will help them on this journey towards leadership or coaching? Um, Well, obviously, apart from my own books, (laughs) I would strong recommendation to go and look at the stuff that my mentor, Dr. Dennis Wakeley did. So he did quite a number of books, up to 14 different books, the psychology of winning, uh, psychology of achievement. He did a lot of books, empires of the mind, uh, read his stuff. He's probably the most incredible speaker I've ever seen. Incredibly talented man. He was in his mid-80s now, so he's not doing his stuff. But if you can get any of his stuff on audio, if you can get any of his stuff on video, if you can read any of his books, let me strongly recommend you look into Dr. Dennis Wakeley in terms of just your own personal self first and then how you manifest that out into the world. I would absolutely 100% strongly recommend him. as he's, you know, he's, He was the psychologist on the NASA moon missions. You know, he was a psychologist of the American Olympic team on four separate occasions. I was fortunate to be mentored by this guy. But if you can watch and hear any of the stuff he presents, just brilliant. 100%. Absolutely guaranteed. Listen, watch, read him. Thank you. Okay, so you've got a golden ticket. And you can go back and advise the idiot Sean, age 23. (laughs) You know what, what, well, obviously. <laughs> well, it's a, I, I've yet to find someone who wasn't an idiot at 23. So you can go back and advise the idiot Sean age 23, and you know he would have probably ignored the advice. What, what would that advice be? Well, for a fact, I absolutely know he would ignore this advice, but it's going to be the advice that it's going to be the advice that my wife continues to give me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is, and it's fair, you know. When you're 23, you're full of testosterone, you're gung-ho, you're all sort of hardcore, and you kind of express maybe a harder face to the world than you really should, because you want, you know, you've got the insecurities, you want to show you're a winner, all that pepped-up hyper-masculinity, command and control type stuff that that obviously the sales world totally, you know, met. And it would be show a warmer face to the world. You know, you don't need to be that way. You know, listen more, ask more, spend time more. Show the bit that's in you, that intuitive self, that nurturing self, that caring self. It's not weak to do that. 
because you've got all the masculine side you can bring to bear if anybody gives you a hard time. So it's actually strength to show that you care, that you can be compassionate, that you're genuinely interested in people, that you want to help them. So show a warmer face. And I would imagine life would have been even more satisfying than it's already been so far. Sorry, I zoned out for a minute. Say that again. The people I, I'm teasing you. <laughs> I know where you live, pal. I haven't got that whole command and control stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sean, how can people get a hold of you? Two ways. One, they can come to my own personal website at seanweefer.com, where they'll see the speaking work that I'm doing, the coaching work, and so on. And the new website will be salesdojo.com, which is where we help sales managers become great sales leaders. Excellent. Sean Weefer, thank you. And thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, helpful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you're feeling generous or cruel, then go to Apple or Google Podcasts and leave an honest review. I'm only interested in honest ones, don't want sycophants. So a one-star or a five-star or anything in between is cool. Now, if you're the owner or CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million turnover range, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve genuine, sustainable, profitable hypergrowth with a team of people who love coming to work and who are highly engaged and really committed to buyer safety and to keeping customers who stick with you year after year, decade after decade, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. You can either direct message me on LinkedIn or email me marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you are also one of those people who's really pissed off with where sales has ended up and you uh, would like to be part of a mission to recapture it from the shysters, the snake oil salespeople, the boiler room sales leaders, then consider joining us at Sales A Force For Good. Check out hashtag SAFFG, hashtag ProCustomer, and hashtag BuyerSafety. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.